Inside Vegas is presented by MyBookie.ag. MyBookie.ag is the official online sportsbook of the Inside Vegas podcast, as well as the Sports Gaming Podcast Network. Use promo code SGP50 to receive a 50% deposit bonus today. Inside Vegas is also brought to you by OddShark. OddShark has the latest betting trends available nowhere else, as well as betting picks from their supercomputer. Check out all of their quality content and betting trends at OddShark.com. another episode of the Inside Vegas podcast. I apologize for a little bit of a late release this week. Uh, things going on, if you know anything about moving, it's the absolute worst. Um, but nevertheless, we are here now. And we're continuing this little mini-series uh, of niche handicapping and markets that are kind of primed to be explored and exploited. Um, and just kind of talk about you know some of the best people in these markets to try to you know, figure out some other ways to, to make money other than just joining the general public, betting football, baseball, basketball, um, in some areas that are kind of only kind of bet amongst professionals. Um, professional bettors are kind of notorious for, for betting these markets, including, you know, WNBA and uh, some of these niche stuff that that's just not explored by the day-to-day casual better, um, mostly because uh, Vegas doesn't offer a lot of these things, honestly. Um, but with the introduction of kind of offshore, uh, and I'm sure as anyone know, as everyone knows, their local books, um, these things are kind of all over the place now. So um, that's an, it's another thing that, you know, Vegas doesn't have kind of all the options that uh, offshore does, um, bas- or Vegas is still not hanging team total for baseball or football outside of uh, playoffs and kind of primetime spots. So um, whether you live in Vegas or you don't, um, I think it's, it's kind of important to kind of be able to shop around and get the best of the number, of course. But even to get down on some of some of these areas, um, you need to have multiple books, which is kind of how it is on uh, today's sports betting landsha- landscape. Um, so we're going to bring bringing on the white whale, uh, one of my absolute favorite people in the world. Um, he was one of the first people that we highlighted on the uh, social media player podcast uh, or uh, written uh, article. That was um, one of the first ones that was done. Um, he has amassed such a great following, has his own uh, podcast titled The Deep Dive, which is an NFL uh, heavy podcast during that season. Um, and after that, they touch on everything. And one of Wales' best sports among any is tennis. Um, so that's what we're going to be doing today is looking at the tennis market and all things betting tennis and, and kind of the grand slams um, and how that differs from day-to-day tennis betting when there's a tournament just about every week or month. Um, kind of talk about the futures markets, the difference between men's and women's markets, um, and try to get you guys introduced to a market that I think is very ripe to be exploited and kind of get you guys uh, into betting tennis. Um, a lot of stuff is overnight for all you degenerates out there. Uh, but other than that, um, it's a great opportunity to make money. So I hope you enjoy the interview with the White Whale. And now joining me on the Inside Vegas podcast is the one and only White Whale. can be found on Twitter at Whale Capper. Um, done a ton of great work in the space. He was one of the first people that we kind of did the uh, uh, social media player profile with on Sports Gambling Podcast. And in all honesty, he's one of the sharpest tennis minds that I know. I mean, there's so many tournaments that go on day in, day out, uh, or week in, week out rather, not to mention the Grand Slam titles, and he's betting every single one of them nonstop. And um, so that's kind of why I wanted to bring him on specifically for 
this kind of mini series introduction into kind of niche markets and things that aren't baseball, basketball, football. But you know, wanted to get in, into kind of the weeds of of some markets that people have proven to find profitable, but that they're for whatever reason there's not a ton of casual fan interest. So, uh, without without any further ado, how are you, my friend? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk some tennis. That's, and that's the thing, right? It's you, that's you're one of the only people I know that that actually not only people, but you're one of a few that actually enjoys tennis. So um, before we break that down, let's just kind of give a little <laughs> a little introduction to how you kind of broke into the tennis market and began betting tennis kind of day to day. Sure. So um, I've bet I bet tennis uh, slams for as long as I've been a sports better. So that goes back probably about ten years. And, um, you know, I was, uh, I was a country club kid growing up and played tennis and swam. And so, you know, once I, you know, got into the, the betting sport, you know, you're in the middle of the summer and the Wimbledon's on and I'm like, Oh, this is great. You roll out of bed, watch Wimbledon all morning. And I was like, man, I, I could, they could handicap this. I like this. And, uh, so I got into, um, got into betting tennis that way. Kind of figured my way around like, okay, money lines are kind of the most common lines you can find. And then there's other markets like handicap on games or sets, or, uh, you can bet total over under on games and, and sets. And so it's kind of explored the, uh, the marketplace, uh, through betting, uh, some of the summer slams. Um, and then, uh, you know, it, it's like, uh, I got, really serious into sports betting in general, uh, hand, you know, probably about like three years ago. And, um, you know, I was kind of figuring my way around, well, what am I going to do when the NFL is not going on? Cause the NFL is really my, my passion for sports betting, mm-hmm. you know, is, is, is birthed out of the NFL. Um, and you know, there's what, seven, eight months of the season where we don't have anything to bet on when it comes to football. Um, and so I kind of was, was, I tried my hand in some soccer. I did not do well at that. Yeah. Join the club. Uh, College basketball is very, very tough for me for whatever reason. I just can't keep up with all the moving parts. Um, I've started, uh, I've started kind of finding my, my, uh, feet in the NBA. I've always done the NBA playoffs pretty well, but, uh, this year for the first season, I'm looking at positive units on uh, NBA handicapping. Uh, and then I stumbled into tennis and I was like, you know what? Like I, I put together, um, a model for the Australian open uh, back in 2016, I want to say, um, it was my first time modeling tennis. And I was like, man, there is no databases around. Like there is like, how do you get database or information or any of this stuff? And it was a struggle because you go to like, you know, ATP.com, uh, which is ATP is the governing body of the men's side of the tour. And you like go to their stats page and like they have one stat. It's like most aces ever. And it's like, this isn't helpful. <laughs> like, what am I supposed to do with this? Right. And so you kind of realize like, oh, man, like this is a totally untapped like market. Like there's, there, you know, there's, there's not, there's nothing, you know, big out there. Um, I sense have found great databases that are way off the radar. Um, but you know, i kind of realized at that point, like, you know, if it's this hard to find data to handicap, like these markets must have lots of vulnerabilities. Like there must be some ways to really make money doing this. And I looked at the calendar and I was like, you know what, like the season starts as NFL is winding down, uh, the kind of the best tournaments of the season are all throughout the summer when there's no NBA, 
Uh, and uh, the season kind of winds down, at least for me, it winds down with the U.S. Open, which is the last slam of the season around Labor Day, uh, which, you know, gives, you know, makes way perfectly for the NFL seasons to start. And I was like, OK, this is this could work. And so I kind of really put my time and effort back in 2016 into developing a model that I could use to uh, handicap matches on the men's side. I uh, had some great, great success. You know, I actually I had mixed success in 2016, but I had a couple of hot, a couple of heaters and I was like, this is really has potential. Uh, and then 2017, I was like, okay, I sat down in January. I looked at the whole calendar and I was like, okay, I'm going to focus uh, on, you know, one tournament a week all throughout the whole season. I, so I laid out like 40 tournaments. I was going to handicap them all. And I was like, okay, if I focus on one tournament, I can kind of watch some of the tennis results. You can get a feel for like the player's form and, you know, kind of use your eyeballs to go along with what I had from my numerical model. Um, and, uh, you know, 2017 just had awesome success. I think I only had like maybe three or four out of the 25 tournaments I handicapped where I didn't make money. So I was pretty stoked. And I was like, this is, and like along the way, like you kind of figure out like this is degenerate delight. Man. <laughs> it's a lot like, of overnight there, waking caches, right? There's a lot of overnight waking cash. There's a lot of, there's betting every day. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, when it's not overnight, it's in like during the daytime when there's no, you know, U S sports live. Um, yeah. And so I was like, you know what, I can find, you know, a handful of plays every day, uh, and, uh, you know, work my way through these tournaments, kind of, kind of learn along the way. And, um, yeah, so last season was a tremendous success this season so far. I'm off to a lovely start. Thanks to a really strong Australian open, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a ton of fun and it is the perfect kind of example of a niche market. You know, you find a sport you love and love to handicap and there's not a lot of, you know, not a lot of whales, pardon the pun, uh, in the, uh, in the marketplace moving lines out of, uh, out of reach where you can find an edge and, uh, you know, you can, you can make some money and, and, uh, and enjoy, enjoy the sport even more. And there's so much to dive into, pardon that pun for you, with your deep dive podcast. <laughs> but was, there's so much to get into with what you just said there. And I don't even know really where to start. But the, what I kind of, the question I always get asked, asked to kind of explain is, you know, my kind of, my thing has always been UFC. And it's, you know, how can you handicap that? And to me, it's, it's very simple because styles will always make fights, right? So you can always kind of, you know, that can always be sort of in the back of your mind when you're trying to handicap this. I mean, I love sports and betting on sports. That is, you know, somewhat one-on-one -on -one just because I'm somebody that likes to eliminate variance. That's why I, I take advantage of the first five market or the first inning market even uh, within baseball. Or I bet, you know, more totals than I do or money line stuff uh, in the NFL just because I like to eliminate variance and try to make life as simple as I can. And, and tennis is obviously just like that. Um, so is there, is, is handicapping, you know, each tennis? I mean, I know you said that you started off with kind of a model type algorithm thing, but is there, you know, a film study? Is that was it more recent form for each uh, player or how do you kind of go about starting to even handicap, you know, two people hitting a ball back and forth? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a fair question. And uh, I to be completely uh, honest and cards on the table. Um, I just Googled like, you know, how, how do you build a tennis model? <laughs> and like, there was a bunch of people who had kind of gone this way before me and they were like, okay, well, uh, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll start with, um, you know, past results. Like how good is this tennis player against an average player? 
Right. Right. Like what does his career statistics tell you? Like this guy has, you know, is, is he, you know, winning 80% of his matches uh, or is he winning 20% of his matches? And you can kind of, you know, just start with just career, like win loss is a great starting point. Um, I like to kind of break out my win loss into time periods. So like, I'm looking not just at their whole career because you could be, you know, a guy could be at the very tail end of his career and be winding down and you don't want to necessarily assume like, you know, Hey, well he went, you know, uh, 50 and three back in 2000, you know, 2008. Like you don't want to be accounting that very highly in your model, you know, but so basically kind of look at, okay, well, how's he done in the last year? Well, how's he done in the last two years? Well, how's he done in his career? And you can kind of give those things separate weights and kind of say, okay, well, this is a reasonable score then for like how good this guy is just against an average player right now. Right. Yep. And then from there, you got a jumping off point to start to kind of put knobs and dials on there to account for various factors that you think are important. The most obvious starting place for tennis is the surface. Right. Not all tennis matches are played on, you know, like the tennis you may have played growing up as a kid on like a, you know, green hard court. Um, you know, every single surface that they play on throughout the course of the tour has different characteristics that you want to account for. Um, and there's kind of these broad categories like, you know, the French Open is played on clay uh, and the U.S. Open and the Australian Open are played on hard court. Uh, and um the, and Wimbledon is played on grass. And so you can kind of then break out players' past performances on each uh, surface and use that to kind of take your, you know, your score of them to another level for the, uh, for the surface of the match that they're playing. Do on, you right? handicap, not to cut you off, but do you handicap sure. certain players on each different surface more? Or do you kind of look at how, you know, uh, I don't want to say how a ball bounces because that sounds so rudimentary, but you, you know, like, do you calculate, not calculate, I mean, you know, kind of what the, how to word this, but do you, uh, you know, how a, a tennis ball bounces on clay versus how it bounces on grass or a hard surface? Like, do you, do, is it more, one-on-one how the player um, performs on each surface or is it how the surface treats people in general I guess is how I wanted to word that yeah they go exact they go hand in hand like um, uh, they go hand in hand because and you can you can use past performance on a given surface as a good indicator of how well they're they will do going forward on that surface Um, but it's almost 100% because of the things you mentioned, like how does the ball bounce off of that surface? Um, does the, does the surface itself take speed off the ball? Uh, and in that, in that case, you know, that, that plays into like a clay, clay is the best example. We're about to enter the, uh, what's, uh, called in the handicapping circles in circles or tennis circles, I guess, uh, the clay season. Um, we've had a couple of, uh, we've had a major and a couple of masters on hard court. Uh, once April rolls around, uh, the tour moves to Europe primarily, uh, and we have like a bunch of really high profile clay tournaments all leading up to the French open. Um, Monte Carlo starts next week. That's a master's 1000. So that's like worth a ton of money and a ton of points. Um, and, uh, after that you have tournaments in Barcelona, Madrid, Rome, um, and, um, and then, that leads into there's a couple of smaller ones too like munich has a tournament and uh um i'm forgetting a couple more but uh that leads into uh roland garros in paris uh at the end of may and um the players who typically do well on clay um one thing that's kind of interesting they know like that's 
that part of the season is where they're going to like rack up points, Mm -hmm. right? They're going to rack up wins. They're going to make their money so that they can survive as a professional tennis player all during that time window. And so they like train themselves physically to peak during that time window. Right. And so, um, so, guys so because they like know that they perform good. so well on a, a specific surface, when when that type right. of surface is coming up heavy, that's when they kind of go all in and everything. That's right. They they'll play more tournaments. They'll like they'll they'll sandbag other tournaments other times of the year so that they're not like incurring like miles and getting themselves tired. They'll they'll try to and then and then they'll just kind of try to peak physically and have their game peaking as they get into that time of year, uh, so that they can get as many wins and make as much money and and because uh, that's their best chance. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's their best chance for these clay players at least is because they don't necessarily have very strong service game, right and uh, and the clay and the speed of the ball coming off of the clay neutralizes big serves, right? So it kind of brings everybody to a common level. If you don't have a banging serve and you're playing on clay court, you're not necessarily at a disadvantage uh, to a guy who's like 6'10", who can serve the ball, you know, 150 miles an hour. So so just kind of that neutralizing factor gives these players um, a better chance. Uh, the ball coming off slower means you can get to a lot more balls too, right? Like you're going to, there's not a lot, it's not as easy to hit a winner on clay mm-hmm. um, just because it's coming off slower. So a guy can run and get to it. That kind of gives an advantage to the smaller players who are more, who have better mobility, right? Like they can run around the court, you know, and defend and return and you have longer rallies and, you know, some players can handle long rallies. Like they're just physically fit, like to run a marathon, whereas other guys are more like sprinters and like you get like 10 shots into a rally and they're gassed. uh, And then a smaller guy who's been, you know, who's having no problems can put them away just because, you know, he's, he's too tired to, to get to, uh, um, you know, a short ball or to the opposite side of the court. And so it's, it's, uh, just the speed of the court kind of controls all of that. Right. And it's so it's, it's crazy to the tune of a guy who is the greatest tennis player of all time. Roger Federer literally will not play clay this year. He did not play clay last year, not because he was hurt, but because he was just like, I don't have the game for this. And I have a limited number of matches left. I'm not going to waste my time playing clay because I just know that I don't have a chance at winning these tournaments uh, and I'm not going to put those miles on. And so he's basically just kind of put himself on the shelf until grass season rolls around in July or June. And, um, you know, he's kind of seeded way to uh, Rafa Nadal, who's, uh, you know, the greatest clay court player of all time. And um, yeah, so it's kind of fascinating. And um, I guess the one other thing I'll mention is, a lot of it also kind of depends like how you were brought up, right? Like if you were born in like Spain or Southern France or other parts of Europe where they play predominantly on clay, like it's your, that's your home turf, right? Like you feel at home on that surface. You understand how, you know, how to construct points better, how to win rallies and how to, you know, how to win matches uh, on that surface more so than you would on, uh, on a hard court or a grass court. And so, you know, it's, it, all those kind of things play, play into why a guy is good on clay. Uh, and you can tease that out of their records pretty, pretty, even if you don't know tennis, even if you've never heard of, you know, the fifth, the 30th ranked player in the world, you've never heard his name. You can still kind of tease out who's good on clay. If you have a good database and you start kind of building a model, kind of trying to weight that aspect of, 
past results and in, in turn in determining who's good on and who's going to be good in a certain match. And you being such a, an algorithm model guy is one of the things that that I've always admired because to me, I can't use a model or an algorithm because I need to give myself kind of the eye test when I'm watching something, right? I need to, you know, it, because if the model tells me one thing and I, you know, really feel strongly about something from a subjective standpoint and, you know, whichever side wins, I'm going to feel awful that I didn't just trust the model or I didn't, you know, kind of go with my gut in any situation. So I think that you have to make it a constant long game, which can be so difficult for people to do to kind of take their own bias out of it and just kind of run with the model. Is there any, I don't want to say, I mean, have you ever, have you dealt with, um, you know, kind of a a time where you were like, you know, I don't want to trust the model here, but I I have to, or do you kind of go back and forth being, you know, such a model driven uh, handicapper? Yeah. It's taken me years to kind of get to the place where I know what to do with model result, if that makes sense. Um, the first probably six, seven years I was sports betting, I was not using a model. I was primarily betting with my gut. I was trying to pick up tips on uh, situational handicapping angles, things like that, because I was like, this is how, it, this is how you win long term. Uh, and then out of the blue, I was like, oh, I'm going to try to build a model for the NFL one time. I did it. I back tested it. The results I was looking at were like, this is ridiculous. Like I've got, I figured out the <laughs> you got the Holy grail, the like, gambling, right? Shit. Yeah. I was like, this is crazy. Like, this is so, I, I'm never going to lose anymore ever again, you know? And you crank it forward and you're like, wait a second. My back tested results. I was like 11 and four every week. I just got like a eight and seven this week. Like what the hell happened? You know? And you don't kind of realize that there are like there are aspects when you're back testing and stuff like that. That the market kind of corrects make, itself, and you're not accounting yeah, for the that market, during back testing. hundred percent. And um, and you're using data that is influenced by the performances that you're back testing against. So it's like, yeah, Patriots are eighteen and zero, and you use their metrics from that season and back test, and it tells you to bet the Patriots every time, right? Of course. It's like, yeah, duh. Yeah, of course. And so you know, it's it's a uh, it's. You know, it, 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 there are those kind of things kind of, you learn the hard way early, like, okay, well the model itself may, may give you an edge one. You don't have to bet every single edge and two, not all edges are created equal. And three, you know, sometimes you think you have an edge from the model, but you actually don't because there are other factors you haven't accounted for, like situational factors or injuries or things like that, that aren't baked into the numbers. And you got to make those adjustments yourself. And so I kind of went through the process of like, okay, well now I have a model. I'm just going to bet it blindly when I have an edge, I'm just going to use Kelly criteria and I have this numerical edge and here, here we go. Let's, let's just, let's just, you know, we'll, we'll go long game here and we'll just take our lumps. And, and, um, I actually did this with tennis and I was like, okay, well, you know, cause the, cause I'll, and I'll just kind of spill some of the, the beans here a little bit <laughs> with, when you run a tennis model, you almost, if you're doing it right, you're almost certainly are going to be identifying an edge on underdogs like all the time, right? Like for whatever reason, the market is always tilted toward the favorites in tennis and you run a model and you're like, okay, I need to be betting seven of the eight underdogs today. <laughs> and then it's well, cause you only have to hit three or, you know, two or three out of right, them. You only have to hit two or three. Yeah. Right. And, uh, but like, you know, you're betting, you know, plus 300 plus 500 underdogs and like, yeah, you only expect those to hit, you know, you know, one out of four, one out of five times. And it's like, you know, so you, you take a lot of lumps. <laughs> if, you're, if you're just betting, you know, you're like, I have a 2% edge 
on these long shots and you know you could go weeks and weeks and weeks where there's just not as many upsets because for whatever reason like that you know like the you know there's a there's a lot of factors i have a lot of theories and situational factors in tennis um you know because it depends on you know how important the match is for certain players and you know how much money is in at stake and things like that all kind of play into whether or not there'll be an upset um and you know the you know if you're just betting the model blindly you know you're going to miss a lot of that a lot of that stuff and you're going to take a lot of lumps. And I definitely went through periods of time where I was flat betting, you know, I was where I was Kelly betting the model results and just kind of like, wow, this is brutal. Some weeks you were just <laughs> so in the red, you can't believe it. And other weeks you're doing great. And people, you know, other, and I, and I got unlucky, I think in a, in a little regard in that the, one of the first weeks I just, just like, okay, I'm going to do this. Uh, it was the Rio Open in 2016 in February. It was right after the Super Bowl, and I was bored, and I had nothing else to bet on. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to blind bet the model. And for whatever reason, like, that was just one of, like, the most, like, upset-filled tournaments of all time. And, like, the, in the semifinals, like, there was, you know, Pablo Cuevas, this unknown Uruguayan guy, upset Rafa Nadal. And on the other side, this Argentinian grinder, Guido Pella, Pella upset uh, this kind of well-known uh, you know, clay, clay court, uh, guy with 500 wins to his name. And it's just like, you know, I hit, I hit these like plus 500s and I was like, Oh my gosh, like again, like I got it all figured out. Like this yep. is so easy. Uh, and then like three weeks go by and like not a single underdog hits. And I'm just like <laughs> complete giving it all back. And then some, and I was just like, okay, I gotta, gotta come up with a new way to do this. Um, and that's kind of, that's kind of, similar to all my kind of stories, I guess, about using numerical models in sports betting is that part one is build a model and get a baseline result. And like, it's going to be a good starting point. But then part two is like critically evaluate those results and try to find reasons for and against actually backing those. Because, you know, sometimes there's an edge that's born out of the line is wrong and the public is wrong and your model is telling you you have an edge and that and that's correct. But other times there's an edge and it's because there's something you don't know that other people know uh, that the line has moved in the right direction and you know that that edge is going to lead you astray. And so you kind of you kind of learn the hard way more or less <laughs> that uh, you can't just blind bet a model. You have to incorporate. Um, you know, you have to incorporate judgment at some level. And, you know, to your first point about like, okay, you want to kind of, if you know, you have a gut feeling about something and the model is telling you the other, the other way, like you do your homework and try to see, okay, well, do I need to, you know, what adjustments do I need to build in here to account for what am I feeling in my gut? And like, if you're feeling something in your gut and you make adjustments that are reasonable and your model is still like, this is still not the right side. Like chances are it's not the right side <laughs> and you're going to save yourself some money and the model is going to save you from making a bad bet, you know, on that basis. And then other times, you know, it's, you know, if you make the right adjustments, you could confirm exactly what you're thinking in your gut and you can, you, you know, the, the baseline model might say, you know, bet Portland tonight and you make the right adjustments for injuries and, and rest and things like that. And it's like, Oh no, 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 you should be betting Utah. You know, and it's like, okay, well, bet Utah. And then sure enough, that ends up being the right side. Those kind of things happen on the regular using analytic models. And, you know, there's, there's really no absolute right way to use them. Um, but you can definitely get into to some tight spots if you're just kind of blindly, <laughs> blindly betting them uh, without kind of incorporating, you know, 
judgment in my opinion. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you brought up a couple couple more great points that are that are fantastic segues. And and for somebody that I mean, I have never bet tennis, you know, more than what I would call a degenerate stake or or, or the grand slams or, you know, specific um kind of have fun if they're overnight um and I, you know, don't have anything to stay up and do. Um but but to do this, you know, kind of week in, week out, month in, month out during this season is is absolutely awesome. Um to see someone that can do this and do this profession or not professionally, but just do this so successfully. Um you know, over the long haul, haul. And, you know, nobody has gotten killed betting, you know, three minus 600, 700 favorites more than me. I'm here <laughs> to tell you that right now, as we've always talked behind the scenes and, and yeah, you've, you've sure. seen, you've seen it happen. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where I, th- I, you know, I always feel that when, when these upset happens, they happen in these, you know, like you've talked about these four five, six, seven, you know, in a row in the same tournament. And then when the chalk comes in, the chalk comes in. And I always seem to find myself on, on kind of the wrong, <laughs> wrong end of that, no matter what I do. And then I get frustrated and you know, the chalk hits and it, you know, you would think to yourself, okay, you know, similar to the NCAA tournament, if you parlayed, you know, this year, obviously notwithstanding, but, you know, every number one seed over the past, you know, against the 16 seed, uh, you know, over the past four years, you know, maybe you've made even money if you parlayed those four matchups every single year. And you can do that almost, you know, I would say, are you once a month with the uh, tennis tournaments? And it just doesn't work out the same way. You know, there's there's so many things that go into it when people retire and this and that. And that's what I wanted to kind of bring oh, up yeah. to you is match in game fixing because this is one of the biggest black eyes <laughs> on a sport that that I've seen yeah. and you know of course when <laughs> when I've bet a, a minus 400 and a couple of parlays and stuff like that and they lose that's my first instinct is to say it's a conspiracy and that the world is against me and it wasn't my fault but is that true is it not true is there has there things that you've kind of found out in terms of people you know tanking tournaments to get ready for the next one there's not a lot of money on the line because each tournament and how, based on how prestigious that tournament is will dictate kind of what the purse is for lack of a better word if, if I kind of understand the tennis you know breakdown and payouts uh, correctly but oh, yeah. this oh, yeah, is absolutely. there's you know it's it's been talked about to, you know, it's a known fact that this is maybe outside of, of boxing and, you know, mixed martial arts fights. One of the biggest problems with tennis is match fixing. Um, so have oh, you yeah. kind of encountered yeah. that or kind of how do you handle that type of thing? I, um, it, it is, I don't, I, it's impossible for me to really tell you how common it is other than to say it, it absolutely happens. Um, I don't think it's as prevalent as you would get the sense if you follow a certain segment of the gambling community because they like to blame losses on things like match fixing when it could be all sorts of things. It just could be randomness. Um, That said, there are certain players who I have on a list who I don't bet because I suspect that in the past they've fixed matches. Um, And there are certain tournaments that I don't bet because – those are the types of tournaments where the stakes are so low for the good players that they are there to pick up their round one check and get out of there, get out of Dodge. Uh, right now is a great example. There is one going on now. Uh, in There is a an ATP tournament in Marrakech, Morocco. Uh, and last year, um, this wasn't an example of a fix, but people probably thought it was. Uh, last year... Um, the number one seed was Grigor Dimitrov. He's a Bulgarian guy, top 10 player in the world, top 10, not just in ranking, but like actually in skill and deserves to be top 10 player in the world. He was the class of the field. It wasn't even close. This tournament was worth 250 ranking points if you won outright, which is very small. Like, for like by comparison, 
um, if you win like Indian Wells or Miami, which are just, they just, the two biggest, um, non-majors that just got completed here in the United States, you get a thousand points. So this one, even if you win it all, you get only a quarter of the points that you would get from a bigger tournament like Miami. Um, and the purse itself is probably even less than a quarter of what the purses are for some of the bigger tournaments. So the pay, the payday really was not there. And, um, you know, this guy gets run, uh, by a much lesser player. Like I want to say this was, was the was last minus, time I bet tennis, by the way, it might have been. This guy we talked minus, about this. This guy was a minus 500 favorite. You looked at the, you, you know, I, I rolled out of bed. I looked at the line. I was like, Jesus Christ, minus 500. Like this guy is classes better than his opponent. Like there is no excuse for the line to be this low. Like something's up <laughs> and, you know, and you think, okay, well maybe he's like, word is out. He's fixed it or whatever. And you know, like, all right, well I'm staying away. And sure enough, he loses and you look at it and you're like, man, did he fix the match? And then like later on, like that day, it kind of trickles out like, oh, he made a deal to play an exhibition match in Monte Carlo before the Monte Carlo Open starts. He's going to play that match on Saturday when he would be in the semifinals of the Morocco Open. And so, you know, he, he's thinking like, I don't really give a fuck. Like, I'm, I'm not sticking around long in this tournament anyway. So, you know, whoever beats me, beats me. I don't care. And so he just, you know, the, the writing was on the wall. Like, if the going got tough, he was getting out of dodge. And sure enough, he drops a set and a tiebreaker or whatever. And he's like, all right, I quit. I'm out. And so that kind of attitude and motivational, you know, angle matters a lot when you see top players in these small tournaments like they just don't they you know they're they're the likelihood that something weird happens and they give up and head on to their next destination take their check with them that kind of stuff happens a lot and it's almost impossible to kind of find out that stuff beforehand because usually you know something trickle out like you know somebody will find out from you know, Dimitrov's, uh, you know, social media manager or whatever, like, oh yeah, she bought him a plane ticket to Monte Carlo. Why is he going to Monte Carlo? Oh, he's got a, you know, an exhibition match lined up that he's going to get paid a hundred thousand dollars to play on Saturday. Like, okay, that makes sense. Now it all adds up. And you know, those things are impossible to figure out, but thankfully like tennis has a really, really, really strong, like social media fandom side to it. And you can kind of just comb a handful of accounts on Twitter and learn a ton about what the players are doing outside of the court. Um, way more so than you can get, uh, out of NFL players, way more than, than you can get from college basketball. NBA is pretty similar. Like if you're, if you're following NBA Twitter, you know a lot about what the players are doing off the court. Um, and tennis Twitter is kind of the same. Like yeah, you can find out a lot of that information. Inside Vegas is presented by MyBookie.ag. MyBookie.ag is the official online sportsbook of the Inside Vegas podcast, as well as the Sports Gaming Podcast Network. Use promo code SGP50 to receive a 50% deposit bonus today. Inside Vegas is also brought to you by OddShark. OddShark has the latest betting trends available, as well as betting picks from their supercomputer. Check out all of their quality content and betting trends at OddShark.com. That's so, that's, I, I, this is why we, we kind of see eye to eye and how we bet tennis and how I bet UFC. See, because when you bet a sport that is one-on-one, you can get into a person's life very easy. And one oh, of yeah. the the best things to do for UFC handicapping is to go and follow and find these fighters' Instagram uh, 
pages and see how are they looking because they're not shy about posting photos with not a lot of clothes on, you know, be it a, a male or a female. And you know what I mean? That's not to say you're creeping one way or another. That's to see what kind of shape these people are in, um, what gym they're training at be, and because people switch gyms all the time within UFC. And so you can gain so much, in, you know, I don't even want to call it inside info uh, because it's available, but you just have to be kind of willing to put in the work. Um, so I'm kind of, you know, again, this, this goes back to, you know, betting a single person versus betting a team and kind of taking out variants. And there's there's so many parallels when you talk about, you know, kind of home court and what people are good at. And this will, you know, to make a parallel to kind of football, this is betting, you know, a team like the Rams, you know, when they were the greatest show on turf, you know, being, are they on turf or are they not? Atlanta is a, has been, you know, over and over yeah. a great example of this where they're on turf or, or they're not. And, you know, if they're in Chicago, Chicago Bears are notorious for kind of keeping the grass long and, you know, it's kind of trying to slow things down. The Saints is another example. Um, these dome teams that have to go outside and there's a reason that they're so much better is because they're built for their home, um, you know, stadium. Or, or be it as it may, you know, whatever the situation may be, they kind of tailor their roster to what, you know, they're going to be playing in eight games a year. Um, of course, you know, UFC, the environment is always the same, you know, obviously based on, you know, judging and, and where an event is being held is different, but the surface is all the same. So that's why to me, you know, tennis is individual, but it also has a lot of parallels to kind of team sports and, and because the surface can be so drastically different from one player to the next. But with that, do you bet, you know, more future stuff and then kind of hedge against yourself or let things ride? Or do you bet kind of more day-to-day uh, matchup stuff or, or kind of how do you kind of attack that market in the futures market, just kind of shifting the gear towards the market side of tennis rather than, you know, the philosophy of how you handicap it? Yeah. So futures, I really, uh, I really tread lightly on futures unless I'm, uh, betting, um, uh, a grand slam, um, week in, week out, there are, are future markets that open up for, um, the smaller tournaments and they are notoriously tough to make money on. Um, the, uh, the, the field, the field, and it all has, all comes down to how big the field is. 128 players will will uh, will be in the field in the French Open. Uh, that right there creates kind of certain tiers where you can find value for guys to go a certain distance into the tournament. So you can do more than just okay, well, I think this guy's going to win. I'm going to bet that, and then I'm done. Right? Like it's more like the NCAA tournament, right, where you have 68 teams to choose from, uh, and you can kind of. Um, as long as they make it to a certain round, you know, you're going to be able to extract some value out of that play. Right. It's, it's kind of, that's the same kind of philosophy you can take into a major, um, and, or a slam. And, um, with the smaller tournaments, with the smaller fields, uh, they basically like, if you're betting a future on a guy, like they got to (laughs) win or else, you know, that's a loss. That's a loss unit. Um, there are a handful of exceptions. Um, there are, guy you can and you they then they stick out like a sore thumb right like like last year on the clay swing um rafa nadal was going for his 10th ever title at monte carlo his 10th ever title at barcelona his fifth ever title at um uh at madrid and his 10th ever title in the french open he was at nine nine four nine and he had a whole advertising campaign worked out with nike for la decima he was going to win his 10th french open like you, if you watched him play two matches at Monte Carlo and you're like, Oh my God, he is going to run everyone off the surface for all of these tournaments. And the odds never even really reflected it, even into 
French Open and Roland Garros where you could get plus money odds for him starting out the tournament. And lo and behold, he walks into Roland Garros and he wins his 10th French Open title without dropping a set. So that was like a stress, you know, stress-free uh, future to have in your pocket. Um, another good example, last year I had a great winner on Alexander Zverev, Sasha, Sasha Zverev winning the Munich Open. Um, he was in Germany. He was kind of, he had proven himself earlier in the season that he could, you know, he could win titles. Um, and, you know, he was looking good on clay. And she think, you know, you see it all on paper, like, oh, wow, he's like the best player in this tournament. Oh, he's in his home country. Oh, he's trying to make a name for himself in the, on tour and collect titles. Right. Oh, he's eight to eight to one to win this. Like, that's crazy. (laughs) You know, like it's an easy swing. Like, you know, you just, you just know that, uh, he's gonna, you know, he's when, you know, and you can kind of, at least my, my week of handicapping a tournament starts with kind of looking at the field, looking at the draw and trying to put players in different categories. And Munich was a great example last year where you looked at the draw and you were like, Oh man, Zverev thinks he's, he's here to win this. And he's, you know, his mindset coming into this tournament is I'm going to win this tournament. And when that's your mindset, you tend to try to either get your matches, your early in the week matches done without, you know, firing all your bullets. And you want to kind of build into your week and get stronger and stronger as you get to each level. So you can kind of, you know, have the mental edge over your opponents because they're like, holy shit, did you see what he did to this guy last week? Oh, he's, he's peaking, he's rising. Oh, he's going to win this tournament. And, uh, and you can kind of put players into those categories as you start handicapping a tournament in the week. And, uh, you know, and, and if you do that and you have a handful, a couple, you know, a couple guys that you have circled in kind of category one, like these guys are here to win this title. Right. Uh, and you look at their prices and they're in the 10 to one range, like by all means, put a future down on them. And, um, and so that's kind of, that's kind of the two approaches I use either. I'm trying to extract value and make the slams more fun. Uh, or I literally see something that is just like a giant shiny silver dollar on the ground, you know, that you have to pick up <laughs> because it's just like, this is, you know, this is the, this is the, um, you know, a perfect situation. So, uh, yep. Yeah, so so the, the longer you go in each tournament betting or, um, for each tennis player is kind of the more, um, you know, quote unquote tennis ranking points that somebody gets. Um, so if somebody is, is up and coming, you know, they would obviously be fine with, you know, making it to, you know, making it two or three rounds, whatever, because they're going to kind of build their ranking and stuff like that. Exactly. Exactly. So how you does that, that, yeah. So how you does that kind it. of, you know, I don't want to say how does that, cause you kind of answered it, but does that kind of play into, you know, what someone's expectation is into a tournament and know when to, you know, kind of hop off, um, knowing that they're satisfied with kind of how they've increased their ranking and stuff like that kind of day to day. Absolutely. 100%. There are, I mentioned the different categories, the guys going into a tournament. I like to categorize a handful of like young up and comers who have favorable draws where they can win a couple of early round matches, you know, and you, you, and those guys, you know, that they looked, they woke up or they got the draw. They looked at it and they were like, Ooh, I can win some, a couple rounds here. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, get, uh, get a hundred, hundred points, put them in my pocket and move my ranking up to where I don't have to play qualifiers, you know, mm-hmm. next week. Like that, that's a huge <clears throat> thing. Cause what's funny is on the ATP tour, if you are ranked between like, I'll say 50 and a hundred, right. You're one of the hundred best tennis players in the world at that time, but it is still is really tough. You'd maybe you don't have a very lucrative uh, sponsorship. 
You probably have to pay for a lot of your own travel, a lot of your own flights. You don't have like a huge team around wow, you. Wow, I had no idea. So if, you if ATP sit. invites you to a tournament and you're not, you know, the upper echelon, you have to pay yourself to actually physically fly there or go there. And oh, yes. tournaments are all oh, like, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. You're, you're flying yourself there. You're paying for your hotel. You're paying for your, your coach. If you have a, if you can afford a coach, you're paying for your, um, you know, your physical therapist to come with you and your social media person, whatever, you know, you, those, your team is, uh, your family, you, all of those people are coming with you at your own expense. And, um, and there is a le- there is a specific threshold where if you aren't ranked high enough and you want to play in just kind of a pretty good tournament, like you might not be ranked high enough to get in without qualifying, which means you have to win matches to get in, to get a paycheck period. Because if you only play qualifying and you don't qualify for the main draw, you get nothing. (laughs) You get zero dollars and you get no points and you get no money. And so getting, you know, so, so you'll see guys who, you know, come in and, um, you know, like a match will mean more to them because they are on that bubble and they've looked down their schedule and they're like, I entered all, you know, five tournaments this summer and I'm in the qualifying list for all of these tournaments because my ranking points aren't high enough. Like if I can eke out a couple wins here, bump my ranking point up a hundred points, I'm, I'm going to get in to these. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get a paycheck, you know, right. like I can, I can afford to fly to, you know, Shanghai and St. Petersburg in, uh, this fall. Right. Like they're, they're literally like, okay, the rest of my calendar will be made if I can just like scratch out a couple points, you know, here and there. And there, you know, you got to categorize guys that way and kind of understand their motivations before a tournament starts, I I find. Um, And it goes the other way, too, where if you are ranked high enough to be in qualifying, to to avoid qualifying, you have to. And like, let's say let's say you played in um, in Miami last year and you made it to the quarterfinals. It was a huge surprise run and you got, you know, 200 50 ranking points out of it or whatever that, whatever the point, whatever the 125 ranking points you got for making a surprise qual, you know, quarterfinal in Miami, Miami rolls around and you got to, you know, get into all these tournaments throughout the course of the year because of those points. And you got a bunch of money and now Miami rolls back around. If you didn't like do well throughout the year and those points are coming due, like if you don't go back to the quarterfinals, you lose those points, you drop in ranking and all of a sudden you're back in the qualifying game. Like that's, that's miserable. Right. And, and, uh, there's a whole second tier of tournaments called challenger, which is below ATP. Um, and you know, guys have to make decisions like, okay, if I'm on the bubble, am I trying to go to qualify for these tournaments to get, uh, you know, ATP ranking points to get paychecks or am I better off going to these challenger level tournaments to try to, you know, get points that way? The paychecks are a lot lower and, you know, the competition is a lot, it's not as hard. Um, and so, you know, the, it makes it really tough on guys as they're going into the week, like, oh man, I made the semifinals by surprise here in this, you know, 500 level tournament last year. Like I better defend those points or I'm screwed. I'm going to challenger level or I'm going to go into qualifying and I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be shit out of luck. And so, you know, the, there's ways to categorize guys like that as you go into the tournament. And I always kind of look, look at the draw, see who's, you know, see who's positioned well in terms of they've got, they've gotten matched up against players they can beat, um, or players that they're of about equal strength to. 
and then look at last year's and just see who performed well at that venue because there's it gives you an indication of two things. One, they understand the venue well. The conditions there happen to work out for them, whether it be the court speed, whether it be like the altitude or the humidity or like, you know, it's at sea level or there's, you know, the, the, the air is drier. Like all those things kind of play into, you know, how guys play well at certain venues. And you can tease that out of just looking at past year's results. And if there's an added component of, well, this guy plays well at this venue and oh, by the way, he's here trying to defend a great run he had last year. You know, those those types of motivational factors absolutely play into guys you want to look to back in the week. Um, and, you know, it's in the back of your mind as you kind of run a model like you put this stuff in there numerically just just because it needs to be accounted for when you're calculating. But then beyond that, you look at the results of the model and you use those kind of those kind of angles to help strengthen your position. And, OK, I'm definitely taking this guy on the money line versus, you know, OK, this underdog He's here defending points. He needs this win to stay off challenger. You know, that that could be the kind of thing that tips me from I'm going to back the over in this match because I think he's going to give it everything he's got and he's probably going to come up short to, okay, I'm going to back the money line in this match because this guy is going to come out here and fire everything he's got. Right? Exactly. He's going to go balls to the wall. And that's what you I wanted know? to ask so, you is yeah. do you play more spread um, or do you go for the whole thing in these plus four or 500 uh, money lines? Because when we talk about this market, you know, one thing that UFC again, and, and not to keep making this parallel to UFC, but there's this is it's kind of the only other one-on-one sport that you can bet. And outside of a decision handicap, which very, very, very few books offer, um, I think Five Dimes is maybe the only book that offers a points handicap. And again, that's only if it goes to decision. Um, it's sometimes it's not an action bet. If if it doesn't go to decision, your bet will lose. Um, there's no Ooh. really, yeah, there's no really handicap to get in there. But tennis as a as a one-on-one bet, you can you know, handicap it, um, and give that underdog, you know, plus however many, you know, sets or whatever, do you kind of look to do pack underdogs in that situation or kind of go to the over, uh, number of sets played or games played or kind of, instead of, you know, backing a plus 600 underdog that you actually do think is live, but maybe not live enough to win it. Is that a type of market that could be kind of exploited and explored for maybe someone who's not ready or doesn't have the bankroll to, you know, bet a three, $400 or a plus three, $400 <laughs> underdog, you know, week in and week out knowing that they're going to take some up and down and, t- and take their lips, yeah. you know? Yeah. No, that e- even, even I-, I would say I've evolved to the place where even I'm not interested in really going for the, the big pit underdogs anymore. Um, I'm, I'm satisfied. Uh, I'm satisfied taking the handicap or the over, um, as, and I kind of, I kind of approach my decision-making, um, systematically. Like I, like I said, for whatever reason, the market's are what they are in tennis. The model is what it is. Maybe I have a, a, a bias model. I don't know. It's possible, but there always pops value on the underdog. Right. Mm-hmm. And not always like sometimes there's, I see value on the favorite, especially if it's like, you know, in, in, in slams in particular, like when it goes uh, all of these kind of in season tour events are best of three for the men. When the mm-hmm. slams scrolled around, it's best of five and it's much, much, much more difficult to get an outright, um, underdog winner in uh, best of five than it is best of three, just because you know you're you're taking some of the randomness out of it. You only got to win two sets. Like a lot of times in slams, underdog could win the first two sets and then lose the next three to the favorite. Like that happens all the time. Is that make live um, betting a market that is um, much more oh, profitable yeah. oh, in tennis than oh, any other sport? Oh, for sure, app for sure. There, um, 
there are people who are making their living live trading tennis. There are they, that are very good at it. Um, it's not a market that I'm ever going to get involved in because I don't have the, I don't go to the trouble of pulling together the database. You need to be good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are people who are extremely good at that and that's like their profession for sure. Um, trading tennis, but the trading, trading tennis hundred percent. Yes. Um, and for, for me though, I'm almost exclusively betting pre-match. I try to put a, get together a card that has an odd number of plays because that's just like a weird OCD thing, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so I'm looking like for five, for three or five or seven plays for the day at a given tournament. And I'm looking at my first thing I crank out my model. I look at my results and I'm like, okay, well, which of these underdogs or which of these, you know, which are their favorites? Or, or actually, I, I'll say I look at any given match and I'm like, okay, is there value on the underdog based on my model? Yes, there is. Okay. Um, is there, what is the likelihood of this guy actually pulling this off? <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. he is, does he have past head to head success against this guy? That's a huge factor in tennis. Like if a guy has beaten a guy before, he knows something about a specific way to attack him. It always doesn't always come tr- come through that you beat a guy over and over and over again. Sometimes it does. Um, but if he has a past head to head win and he's an underdog, that's the thing I love to, to know and love to love to have that in my back pocket. Um, if I'm looking at him, I'm like, okay, well, this guy is, you know, he's, he's going to give it everything he's got. He's going to probably get close. He may win a set. He may, you know, really push this to, you know, a tiebreaker to like, okay, I think he's going to get close, but I don't think he's going to get there rather than back him on the money line. I'm going to take the over, uh, because in my opinion, at least an overplay on games. Can you just explain the over or or kind of the over under for anyone that's very new to, uh, betting tennis? Sure, you can bet over sets or over games. I almost always bet over games, and that's just because the book I use um, offers the best lines on over games. And so basically you're saying, how many games will be played? One set, you win a set when you win six games by at least two, right? So you can win six zero, six one, six two, six three, six four. If it's six five, you can't win. You have to win a seventh game, seven five. Or it goes six six to a tie break and you win seven six, mm-hmm. right? And your average set is usually about six four, right? So there's about ten games per set is kind of a good rule of thumb, unless it's and so if you're backing it over, you're basically saying, okay, this guy's going to keep it close. He's going to take this first set to seven six and then second set to six four, and there's going to be twenty three games and the over unders at twenty two. I think that we have a game edge here. I'm going to back the over. I don't think my guy can win a set or I don't think he's going to win uh, in straight sets. I think he's going to lose, but it's going to be close. An over is a good look there. Right. Um, the handicap, if, if I look at the game and I'm like, okay, I like this guy's chances a lot, but I don't want to back him on the money line and the over is a good look. I'll think about it in terms of, okay, well, what if he wins the first set, right? Like what if he's comes out like a, shot out of a cannon. He just like works this other guy six, three or six, two in the first set is the other guy have a history of packing it in. Right. And if the other guy has a history of packing it in, then rather than back the over, I'm going to look for the handicap because then I'm like, okay, that, that way you don't take a loss. If your underdog who you've identified with value wins in straight sets, right? Cause there's maybe no worse feeling in tennis than you're like, this guy's going to win. He's got a chance. I don't have the guts to back him on the money line. So I'm going to take the over 
And then sure enough, he comes out and just blows doors off the favorite. You're <laughs> right. like, great. I took a loss when I had the exact, exactly the right read on the match. Great. You know? And so I kind of try to protect myself that way. And I'll look for like, okay, well, is this, you know, is, is, is there a chance that the guy, the favorite, if he loses the first set is going to pack it in. If I think that there is a chance of that, then I'll back the handicap instead of taking the over. And then in certain cases where you're like, okay, I feel really good about the center dog. Uh, not only is this a great situation for him, great surface, great head-to-head pass results, or like the other guy is just ripe to be fa- faded or whatever, then I'll back him on the money line. And I just try to, you know, do whatever I can to kind of construct a card that covers, you know, covers, covers, um, you know, different angles of attack on a given match. So that if it's like, so that if like, my read is like way off. Like I expected the conditions to be slow and wet and they were actually dry and fast. I don't just get work on the whole card. <laughs> right. So, and you know, so the, the general kind of, rule yeah. of thumb between, um, or amongst professionals is, um, you know, based on a hundred percent of your bet, it's 70%, 70 to 80%, uh, spread. And then that 10 to 20, maybe 5% on the money line. Do you subscribe to that too? When you feel you have a live dog or do you go more money line heavy and then back the, um, the handicap or how do you kind of differentiate that, uh, between your two bets? Uh, I'd say I'm probably one quarter into backing, um, one quarter into backing the, the underdogs outright, mm-hmm. um, about a half into backing overs when I see value in the underdog, but I don't think he has, I don't think he wins outright. Yep. Uh, and then about a quarter in looking for plus games or, um, and I didn't mention even like sometimes you go through your whole exercise on a given match and you're like, there's no way this guy's this underdog is winning. Like there's just there's too much stacked against him. Like this is too powerful an opponent on too good a surface, and there you know there's not enough value on the underdog. So at that that point, I'm happy kind of constructing parlays with favorites, um, and that probably makes up the last quarter with you know some handicap plays in there too. Right, exactly. Um, so I'm glad you touched on this. Or, um, you know, I, I hate to liken this to the NCAA tournament and that that it happens you know once a month like that. Um, but it's interesting that you know. This would be, you know, Loyola playing these teams every single month. You know, if you kind of break that down to a person versus person instead of a, a whole uh, program or team, um, or any, you know, any tournament situation, it's you know, UFC or, or boxing or there's no tournaments. Um, it's always just one person against one person. And so, for a sport to be kind of so tournament driven is is very interesting because you get those specific head to head matchups over and over again. And of course, you know, there's that um, kind of parallel to the NFL with being in your division, and you can kind of look at the the regular season somewhat of a tournament. Uh, you know layout being that they always play you know their division for half half the games but um do you see i want to transition this into kind of going away from the uh, you know day-to-day tournaments the small time stuff into the majors and you touched on the fact that these have notoriously been kind of uh chalk driven or that the cream kind of rises to the top being as how they're their biggest paydays they're the biggest um you know kind of qualifying ranking points that are up for drab uh grabs especially. Um, and that's, you know, again, the NCAA tournament happens once a year and, you know, of course there's these great stories. And that's what we were talking about of these people kind of, you know, getting, you know, I mean, there's, there's nobody that said Loyola had a bad tournament cause they made it to the final four. I mean, that's a story in and of itself. And so with it being kind of chalk heavier, uh, during these, these majors, um, that are for a year or the grand slam, uh, kind of tournaments are there, do you look to kind of back chalk heavier? And I know you said that your model will kind of always 
point you towards underdogs, but how do you kind of deal with that knowing that these are kind of, this is the best of the best playing on the, the grandest stage of each event, you know? Oh, for sure. Um, my general thought on slams is, is very, very similar to the NCAA tournament. You've drawn a very good parallel there without even betting a lot of tennis. I think you kind of have a, a, a kind of, um, I don't know. I, and, and you know, this goes for anyone who's listened to this podcast who might be interested, like, oh, I'm going to give this a shot. It sounds fun. Um, it, the parallels are there with a lot of other sports. UFC, great example because it's mano a mano. Tournament is a great example because the the um, kind of the energy and the environment and the um, kind of the factors that make for an upset are all all there. And when it comes to a slam for tennis, when they're when, when you generally see outright upsets, they're early. They're in rounds one and two. And they're in rounds one and two because um, a lot of times the underdog doesn't have anything to lose. A lot of times the favorite is not intending to pull out his best game on round one. Right? They want to kind of ease into it. Right? They don't want to like, you know, put all their cards on the table for their future opponents to see what they have, you know, in their arsenal in round one. And then, oh, lo and behold, they're down 2-1 to some guy they didn't even expect was going to be, you know, a threat. And, you know, they're fighting for their life in the tournament. Oh, they, they got knocked out because the underdog got the momentum in the fourth set, which is all, you know, or they want a tie break because, you know, there's lots of coin flippy stuff about tennis. Um, and so, um, you know, when you see upsets in, in slams, they're usually in the earlier rounds. And then you get to the later rounds and all of a sudden it's like the usual suspects kind of are all showing up. Right. Yeah. And, and that's how the NCAA well, tournament is. You know, you yeah, have Loyola, but same, at the end of the day, same, it's, yeah. it's always a Villanova. It's always a Kansas. Yep. It's always a Duke that the, cr- the cream rises to the top. Yeah. And factors that play into that are experience matters a lot in, in, uh, in best of five tennis. If you're not playing best of five all the time, like you don't necessarily ha- know what it takes to win that particular match right and so you know you can be the better player on that day and still not win because you didn't realize like you needed to to like lower your level a little bit in the second set after you won the first to kind of save a little gas for sets three and four right like those kind of things you learn over time as you play best of five and, and play at the highest level um and then when they throw you from the outer courts where there's like a handful of people watching onto the main stage the nerves are just bananas and you can be playing the best tennis of your life and then you wake up one day and like all of the freaking, you know, Serbian media is in your face asking you questions about your performance. And you're like, what is going on? And you walk out and there's hundred, you know, and there's, you know, there's, there's a hundred TV cameras and 15,000 people watching you play. And you're like, you don't perform as well. Like that, that type of stuff happens on the regular. And so you get to rounds, you know, four or five, you know, round four, quarterfinals, semifinals, and, um, you see much, many, many fewer upsets. That doesn't mean that there's not opportunities to, to make money. Um, and bet, you know, bet with the same kind of philosophy that you would use otherwise. Um, you know, over still hit, you can, you know, a lot of times in, in those sort of, um, those sort of matches, they'll be, you know, they'll, they'll be, the favorites will be really juicy and even money line parlays, you know, still might be tough to swallow in terms of how much juice you're laying. Um, but don't talk to you me know, about money line parlays <laughs> or favorites in tennis, buddy. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but you can still, you know, you can find, okay, well this underdog, you know, he's, he's got the chops. He's been in this stage before he's not going to lose his cool. He can win a set. 
Yep. Right. And maybe you back over three and a half sets, basically just like you're backing on the underdog not to get blank. It's so funny right? to me because path <laughs> path to victory is such a huge thing when it's one on one. Um, you know, when it's one person oh, versus one person, sure. path to victory is is kind of everything. And so it's fascinating to me that tennis the path to victory for an underdog is always the over and not even to the fact that they're going to win, um, you know, just come out and dominate in straight sets. But if an underdog is going to hang around and make himself a, you know, a live underdog, it's going to go over. So to me, that's, that's kind of fascinating in that the market <laughs> is, is kind of cut and dry as to the path to victory for a, um, an underdog. Do you find that, you know, the, Again, it's so different because again, I'm so used to handicapping UFC in that when a path to victory it could be he's a fantastic submission artist, which could lend itself to um, an under, or you know he's super durable but he has no chin, which could lend himself. Or I'm sorry, he's super durable, has a great chin, but he can't defend a submission, so the under is still live there. So to me, it's fascinating that for every single underdog in tennis, <laughs> as long as they make it kind of an event or make it a match, um, it's going to go over. That's that's absolutely kind of. I think that that's right for the exploiting for lack of a better term. I agree. Yeah. hundred percent. And I mean, um, when you, when you bet an over, uh, and you're watching live, um, the best feeling in the world is the underdog winning a very tight first set because then you're like, this puppy is going the distance, mm-hmm. right? If, if you know, you're getting three sets, that thing's going over. And if it's a tight, you know, if the underdog wins a tight first set, and and it and it's and it and it's an underdog that has kind of experience and has had upsets in the past. Then you know that they're kind of gonna do what they can to save it up a little in yep. the second set, and they're gonna concede the second set, knowing that they have they'll have the upper hand in the third set when they're feeling a little fresher and they're you know they've saved a little bit of their arsenal for uh, when the going gets tough. And so you know you you watching you know the the two the two best feelings when you're holding it over are. Um, if it gets to a tire break in the first set, you're like, all right, I already got 13 wow. games home. Like this thing's in great shape. Um, wow. it's an even match and the chances that you're going to get, you know, another long second set, even if the favorite wins, you're feeling pretty good about that. Yep. Uh, and then if the, if the underdog can win a tight first set, then you're, you're feeling even better. Cause you're like, this thing's going three, uh, put this thing to bed. So that's Ab- funny. Absolutely, man. It's, it's crazy. Um, so I think we've kind of hit on everything, but one thing I do want to kind of touch on is the fact that we've only talked about, uh, ATP, um, and girls, we haven't even touched oh, yeah, on women's. Sure. And is that just because that's kind of where your model lends itself? Um, or is there, is that just kind of where you find value or is the women's sets, uh, women's tournaments and women's games completely different? Um, much in the way that, you know, one-on-one boxing women's or kickboxing or MMA or anything that is one-on-one, um, women is a completely different handicap than men. Two, two factors. Um, actually, I, I could probably talk about, about this for a while. Uh, the, but the first and most simple one is I do like to see it with my eyes to know like the level of players form, right? Like I don't need to see the whole match necessarily, but I just need to see kind of key points in the match and kind of gauge, uh, like in round, cause like it's, a, you're, you're, you're planning on betting a tournament. You're going to bet it seven days. Right. And if you start watching on Monday, like you're going to get a few, you need to get a feel for what the conditions are like. You need to get a feel for how the certain players are playing. And like, if you have a handful of players that you think are, um, you know, are threats to win, uh, you want to see them play round one and two. Right. 
And uh, so I like to see it with my eyes. And there is a really, really, really useful tool for handicapping on the men's side. The ATP Tour has a product called Tennis TV that's like, and this is not an ad for them. I'm not affiliated with Tennis TV, <laughs> but it's like a $99 a year subscription. And you can watch, replay, fast forward, jump around to like every uh, match all 22 on for tour. NFL. Exactly. It's all, you nailed it. Exactly. It's like all 22 for NFL. That product exists for the men. It makes it much easier to put your eyes on what's going on on the men's side. And when I started doing this like daily, uh, that product didn't exist for the women. And mm-hmm. so it was an easy, it was an easy call. Like I'm just, I can't see enough of the women's matches to really gauge, uh, you know, their form. So forget about it. I'm just going to not, not even going to bother. Um, mm-hmm. separately from that, when I have tried to kind of dip my toe in the water for the women, um, and just, and again, kind of going by the eye testing, there's lots and lots of women's tennis players in like the 30 to 100 range that I've never seen play, right? They'd like, I, if I haven't, if they haven't made it to like the, the, the middle later rounds of a, of a grand slam, I have no idea what their game is like or how, you know, how, if they're, if they're peaking, if they're fading or, you know, if they're, you know, where they are in their careers, I just don't know. Um, and so that makes it extremely tough to cap regularly and in, in early rounds especially um and so i just avoid women's tennis in the slams even in the early rounds just because i don't know enough about the players mm-hmm. uh to kind of use judgment beyond whatever the model would tell me um and then the third factor is it feels more random in general and i think this is i you know i, I have probably some um i'm speculating a lot here um but the women's there's slightly less consistency for whatever reason. Yep. Be it the kind of the demands of the tour and like whether it's tougher to go out and and re- repeatedly you know make deep runs in tournaments. Like there's much more of um of kind of a rotation you know among mm-hmm. the top tier women um, where you know this this woman is peaking in this tournament this one and this one this one and this one as opposed to on the men's side where you're like. Here comes the clay season. Rafa is going to dominate. Now we're on grass. Federer is going to dominate. Okay. Now, you know, so there's, there's kind of, um, a difference for whatever reason where it's tougher to maintain long-term consistency unless you're Serena Williams, obviously. Right. Um, and, and, uh, but all that said, um, the women's product right now is freaking awesome. Like they have so many like top tier talent and like, I would say of the, you know, when the Australian Open happened in January, like if you told me to rank like the top 10 matches I saw, like eight or nine of them were women's matches. Like they were just, it was just a better product. And like part of that is like, okay, Fed is still dominating. Like we saw this last year, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, beyond that, you know, there was just the the level of competition and the fact that you had like, this whole crop of women who were all peaking they're all in like the right age range that any one of them could win. A bunch of them were trying to go for their first slams. It just made it absolutely fascinating to watch and watch it play out. And, um, you know, I, I have high hopes for, you know, the women's French open looks like it's going to be just as good. Uh, Wimbledon could be just as good. And now you throw Serena back into the mix as she gets back in shape. But, you know, the, the women's product is in extremely good hands right now. And it's, if anything, it's more entertaining than the men's side where you have like a handful of players who you think legitimately have a chance to win any slam. 
And so, yeah, when we talk about one-on-one sports, I mean, the whole point of, of kind of garnering interest in, um, is being, you know, kind of marketable and, and kind of putting, you know, being the face of the sport. And obviously the uh, Williams sisters have done that. They've had a monopoly on that in the WTP for God knows how long now. I mean, since I was a little kid. Um, and obviously, I mean, they've slowed down a little bit, but they're still... Um, the, whether they win or lose, they're always going to be the face of, of that sport. Um, and I think they always have that going for them. And they'll always be the, you know, the Sharapovas and the, and the household uh, names of the world. But um, is tennis more driven by, um, I don't know how do I kind of word this? It, it, you know, w- within, when it's a one-on-one sport, be it boxing or, or you know, Olympics or anything that you're going to bet one person versus another person, a lot of even what goes into building that line is kind of how marketable they are and you can kind of fade that that public love or that recency <laughs> bias. Is there kind yeah. of new faces that are kind of coming up within, um, not even just for the women's, but the women's and the men of kind of who can you know, be, be the next Federer, be the next Nadal, be the next uh, Williams sisters. Uh, you know what I mean? Is, is tennis kind of yeah. looking at itself to kind of take that next step or is it just kind of they're happy doing what they do because these these players have such a long shelf life gosh man it on the men's side i guess kind of the state of health of the men's tour right now is not great Mm um federer and nadal are getting old uh federer is like think turns like 37 this year i say that as i turned 37 this year as well but that's another story um (laughs) the uh I'm not old for the handicapping world, though. I'm young for the handicapping world. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, Federer and Nadal are kind of aging out of the sport. Um, We don't expect to see them for many more years. And when their names aren't in the draw, when they're not able to market the sport with them at the top of any given tournament, it's going to have a huge financial impact on how, you know, ticket sales, TV sales, things like that. There are people who are only in the sport because they are fans of those players. Um, Djokovic and Murray, who were the other half of the – of the big four of the last generation. Um, those guys look hurt slash injured to the tune of it's unlikely we see them play a top level tennis again. Mm-hmm. So what do we go? Where, where do we go now? Um, the guys that were in the generation below them were like mentally abused by them. <laughs> if you can, <laughs> if you can get, I don't know if that makes sense, but like they like just Hayes got situation guys. So oh, many times. Oh, okay. No, no, just just in, in on the court. Right, like, right. Okay. They, they just like, every on that time level. there yeah. was a big match and it was like, You're the next gen. Come on, take the step, beat Federer. You lost three nothing. You know, like it, like they just have taken so many lumps from the this the big four that I don't think we're ever gonna see much out of these guys. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of like this gap where there's not like uh, you know, there's not like a next tier of guys who are the peak, you know, in their prime who are going to, you know, wrestle control of the tour away from the old farts. And we saw it last year. Federer and Nadal split them slams, for Christ's sakes. Right. Federer won the Aussie Open in Wimbledon. He won Wimbledon without dropping a set. Nadal won the French Open without dropping a set. Those accomplishments are ridiculous, let alone the fact that they're – that was like Nadal – I mean, that was Nadal's 10th French Open – and then Federer, who just won the Australian Open, that was his 20th Grand Slam. Like, it's crazy that they're, that no one has, like, knocked them off the pedestal. But here we are. And so then there's kind of this gap where the next generation really is underperformed. And so then you have to look to, like, literally, like, the up-and-coming youth, right? Like, guys who are in, like, the 24 to 18 range. And you're like, okay, well, which of you guys is going to emerge then? Because somebody's got to win these tournaments. And like, there's a, there's a couple of guys, uh, who have the talent. There's a couple of guys who have 
kind of the mental makeup. Um, but it's not obvious because, you know, no one, none of them have won slams and none of them have even made particularly deep runs at the slams. And so it's like, if you're not, you know, if you're not winning slams then you're not the face of tennis, I'm sorry. And so guy like Sasha Zverev, who I mentioned who won Munich last year, he took a major step in winning Rome masters. That was a high profile tournament. People were like, Oh my gosh, this kid's coming up. He's going to be the next big thing. He goes into uh, the French open and gets knocked out the first round. And it's like, Oh great. You know, we're, we're all done. He goes through the summer. He goes to the, um, the Canada masters tournament It's called the Rogers and it was in Montreal last year, the coupe Roger, uh, he beat Federer in the final. It was a crazy, you know, it was a crazy accomplishment. This kid, Sasha Zverev, you know, 20, 20 year old kid from Germany beat Federer in the Masters final. And people were like, oh my gosh, he's going to make a run at the U.S. Open. He gets a cherry draw at the U.S. Open. They fitted him up in this Pharrell designed Adidas kit that was like retro, like 1970s block colors. Like everyone was like high on this kid. He was the third favorite for the tournament. And uh, I think he got knocked out in the second round. And so I was like, okay, you know, like he, th- this is this guy. Is he ever going to make the leap? And you yeah, know, so there's a live up to there the is a it happens ton. in any sport when you're trying to push yeah. somebody and they and they fall. Through. Yeah, I completely understand. So there's a t- there's a ton of pressure on that generation right now to do something. <laughs> and um, you know, whether we see it in 2018 or not is is anyone's guess. Um, but you know, absolutely 2019, 2020. I think we'll we'll see them emerge. I want to kind of wrap this up and I want to kind of, I want to tackle two more questions. One to me is what is the tennis market? Uh, like, because it is not only, I mean, tennis, I don't want to say it's not popular within the United States because again, as we're talking about niche markets, I think it's one of the more popular. I think that UFC is probably the most popular among the niche markets. I think boxing and boxing purists are kind of right below that. Um, and I think the tennis is maybe the three, four right after golf, uh, perhaps amongst casual fans. Um, but is there, um, because it's, it's different when you talk about kind of where these niche markets kind of limits open and kind of where the market will take them, especially, uh, again, speaking from experience where so many big favorites lose, you know, time and time again, is the market, um, is it very fluid? Is it, you know, again, in for when you go back to UFC, I mean, a, a minus 180 can balloon out to minus four or 500 if the right people and the right limits are, are kind of bet on things. But the limits are kept very low at open um, because odds makers know this. And there's less than maybe three or four that will allow more than a $100 bet at open. Um, is this this market kind of unique in any situation? Or how does this market kind of shape itself for every tournament, uh, both in the futures and the kind of matchup and, um, you know, day-to-day uh, match market? Sure, sure. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say worldwide tennis is probably the second most bet sport after soccer. Absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I'm Europe, sorry. I meant what I meant was within is, like kind of the gambling community. Oh, sure. No, 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 no. In no, sports I, books I, I, and stuff like yeah, that. You almost have to totally separate them because like the market, like we are, we are getting wagged by whatever's going on in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, no, I don't think there's any market makers out. Maybe there's a hand, maybe there's a couple in like Canada and Australia and the U S it's possible. I don't think so, but it's possible that there are a couple market makers who are really moving lines in tennis. Mm -hmm. I think almost everything is happening in Europe. Um, and the first book that opens is called marathon sports book. And it's a UK book. I don't have any access to it as a U.S. better. 
Um, but I know we always kind of know to go there to look for what the opening lines are. And they always have a soft landing open. They, they put up money line numbers first for any given matchup. Uh, they get bet to hell. Like you see them move massive moves in the first like hour. And then Penny will open theirs up about, you know, 15, 30 minutes after marathon, getting an idea of where the market is going with a little bit of larger limits. Right. And then the penny line kind of governs movement after that. And they take by far away the most, uh, the most money, I believe of the tennis books and, Everything that we get access to is U.S. betters from offshores or if they even put lines up in Vegas for these tournaments is based off of what's being what's happening in, in the U.K. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and in general, like I've kind of I'm resigned to the fact that, like, I'm not I'm not beating major line moves in tennis. Right. Like there's I'm not I'm not like um, I don't have an alarm clock set. Uh, to wake up at two in the morning when the UK books it's like seven in the morning and they've got lines up for Shanghai, you know, day three, you know, like I, like I, I just know that I'm, I, I'm not going to be beating these numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't even try. I just kind of keep an eye on it. And, um, I would say it's a, it's a relatively efficient market in that the closing line often is a good indicator, um, of the correct line. Uh, I'd say line movement is misleading about 25% of the time, mm-hmm. maybe 30, 30% of the time. And, um, there's nothing like what we have with like sports insight where you have bet percentages and fading the public and things like that. That's doesn't exist. Um, no one's out there like, putting a hype video for, you know, Sharps hammered, you know, born a church over, you know, as fair of in the semifinal of this match, you know, that that's not a, there's not that segment of the betting market doesn't exist as far as I can tell you. Yep. Um, and so you're left with like people who do it regularly, people who are really into it. And then people who are like just getting into it for the first time, uh, and, or are, you know, tailing somebody that they see posting winners, um, and in the U S oh, you know, and, and so it was pretty straightforward. Actually, I have a, I have a really tight group of kind of tennis handicapper friends that I talk to online pretty regularly. Um, and it was pretty easy for us to find each other <laughs> because there wasn't right. many people who were doing it so regularly. Um, and you know, we like to bounce off ideas and things like that. And that definitely helps us make sharper bets over the course of, of a, of a season. Absolutely. I'm sure of that. Um, and you know, that it's, it's not, you know, if somebody has gets into it and has a you know passion for it, like by all means DM me, but like, it's easy to kind of get into if you decide to do it, I, I would say. And there's a, there's probably a pretty significant opportunity for, you know, us betters to make a move into this market if they feel like they, if they have a passion for it, really. You couldn't um, have, have set me up any better, bro. My second question was, <laughs> if somebody is looking to kind of get into this space and start betting tennis, um, you know, pretty seriously or, or recreational, recreationally, uh, what kind of, you know, how does somebody get started in the market? You know, again, not that I want 100 people DMing you and, and getting your advice, but what would you, you know, mm-hmm. tell a mass audience of somebody that wants to get into these niche markets um, and they, you know, 
they've always been a fan of tennis, but they've never really bet it? Or, you know, how does how does one get started in this space again? And, you know, I'm speaking to the fact that if you have a if you're a fan of tennis, you're always going to have a way greater understanding of it than even somebody like I do, who, again, I watch maybe one or two of the Grand Slam events of the year. And that's kind of it. But how does you know, how did kind of how, what's your advice to somebody that wants to get started in this in this space of this niche market? Mm, well, uh, definitely get a Twitter account um, and follow a handful of folks. I have a couple of lists on my Twitter, and there's a good tennis list of like mandatory tennis follows yep. that are huge for information and news. And you kind of, you know, you kind of immerse yourself in that for a couple of weeks, and you're going to be like, oh wow, there's a lot of information here. Um, I'm starting to know people's names. You, you know. Because really, I guess if you're getting started, the first thing you're going to want to know is like, who are these players? How, you know, what is their history? Where are they from? You know, you know, just try to develop a couple fandoms, really. Like, okay, I like this guy. He keeps winning for me. Or like this guy, I like to fade this guy. You know, like you really kind of want to develop relationships, I think, with a couple of players to kind of really cement your interest in the sport. Um, and then I would go to tennisabstract.com is the best database in the universe for tennis. Um, they have like such a plethora of data and results and information head to heads, uh, pat, you know, stuff that you would need to judge people's past forms, past forms at specific tournaments, past forms overall, past forms on certain, um, surfaces, things like that is all available there. And that is a really great resource. Uh, I would download the flash score app for your mobile device. Flash score has up to the second, um, live results for in, in match play. Um, easy to follow along if you're not watching a television, uh, or if you're not streaming the ATP radio has an app. Actually, ATP Radio is on TuneIn, and you can listen to matches. Listening to matches, I found, is a really great way to learn a ton. Uh, in fact, I've I, one of the most one of the best tricks I guess I've learned about betting slams. If you were listening to the radio regularly, you're gonna they they provide so many more tidbits and details and tips about um, you know what's going on with certain players, why they're succeeding, why they're struggling, things like that. You glean so much off of the radio broadcast. That's really useful. Um, I mentioned tennis TV before is a great way to um, stream tennis. You can watch. I watched it on my Apple TV. You could watch it on your laptop. Uh, again, you know, it's like, uh, it, you know, rewind and, and replay and, and just look at packaged highlights. Things like that is all available there. That's a that's a great subscription. Um, and, um, yeah, just uh, kind of learn the hard way and, you know, get your feet wet. And uh, it's um, it's oh, I guess. And then the very last piece of advice, maybe the easiest, the easiest piece of advice Um like if you're getting started sports betting in general and you just wanted like outside of like bankroll management or whatever, like that, things like advice, like just don't, don't play parlays, right? Like it's, it's <laughs> just too tough to win. Hand. It's just too tough to win long-term, especially when you're getting started. If you're out there swinging on parlays yep. with, with, um, with tennis, the, the, um, golden rule that I kind of live by is don't lay juice on handicaps on totals because the difference in price that they offer for 22 and a half versus 23 
is not does not match what the actual value in that half point is or that half game. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but basically if over 22 and a half is minus 115 and over 23 is minus 105, take over 23 every freaking time. Don't even think about it. If you can sell half games on the totals and handicaps, you are going to find yourself substantially more successful over the long-term betting tennis. Um, and to a degree, if I was re, if I went back to my 2017 season, I had an amazing season. If I went back and regraded all of those plays based on a standard juice line, um, I don't think I would have made any money. If it, I think I, I probably would have broken even if not been in the negative, to be honest, because that's how much, um, you know, that's how much it matters when you're high volume betting. You know, I think I played like 700 plays in tennis last year. And my average odds were probably like plus 125 or plus 130. Um, so I only had to hit like 40 something percent to make mm-hmm. money. Um, and if you take, if you kick that up to 52 or 55, like for good luck, you know, you're, you're, you're in deep trouble in tennis, especially because of the, the amount of upsets we see. Absolutely, bro. Well, we did it. So uh, I want you to be able to plug everything <laughs> you have going on in this space because it's it's absolutely amazing what you're doing, kind of uh, the voice that you become. Um, obviously, you know, you have the podcast, um, your Twitter, that's that's been doing yes. amazing and, and all your content. So go ahead and plug away where people can find you, man. Of course. Well, thank you for the opportunity to come on to Inside Vegas. I've been enjoying your podcast and I love your venture as well. So this has been a cool experience. Um, I do a podcast as well. We're up to about 60 episodes uh, the deep dive we're on tunes, we're on SoundCloud, we're on Stitcher and, um, my uh, co-host and I, we, our passion is football, but, uh, when we're not talking NFL handicapping, we're talking about tennis handicapping or the masters or the NBA playoffs coming up. We're going to do a whole series in the next couple weeks talking the NBA playoffs. Um, we're going to make a lot of money in the NBA playoffs. I'm super excited. So, uh, check us out on the Deep Dive podcast or at Whalecapper on Twitter.com. Um, I'm there too often. So <laughs> yeah, join the club. <laughs> and again, all every single thing that you've ever put out there is free. So um, for <laughs> anyone, right. if for anyone that is um, again trying to get into the space, you know, I, I always try to bring on the right people on this podcast that do things the right way, whether they charge it or they do not. And everything that you've ever done is completely free. And, and I can't commend you, uh, kind of enough for, for kind of bringing, um, doing the, you know, doing the right thing. Cause that's, there's different, <laughs> there's different, uh, thought processes there, especially with me. Not but, doing uh, the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah. Doing it the right way. Um, and, and yes, you know, seriously kind of basing your, you know, social media presence off of giving people free information and free content, brother. Um, so again, thank you for coming on, man. And, uh, again, free, uh, free content and anything you could ever want to know with, uh, at Will Capper on Twitter. Um, the following is growing over 12,000 followers. You've done amazing things in the space, buddy. So again, continue with the best of luck in the space and, and all the continued success in your tennis handicapping. Well, thank you so much, and I look forward to talking to you again sometime and continuing to listen to Inside Vegas.